Good morning. My name is Jared Bush, and I'm one of the non-sitting elders here at River Rock Bible Church. I guess what that means is I've finished my three-year tenure as an elder, and now I just sleep in every Sunday morning. Uh, This year, we're going through Hebrews chapter 11, which lists heroes of faith in the Bible. So many of the Sundays that you come here to River Rock, we're going to be going over the names that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, last week, Pastor Charlie did a great job of teaching on Abel and how he worshipped by faith. Um, this week, Pastor Charlie's taking a much-needed vacation and spending some time with his family. And our associate pastor, Stephen, was scheduled to speak today. But unfortunately, he had a death in the family and had to go to a funeral. So um, you've got the C team today. <laughs> uh, so Wednesday morning, I'm at work, and uh, Stephen calls me up, and he says, Hey, Jared. Uh, my aunt died, and she lived in Georgia. The funeral's going to be in Georgia, and I need to go to the funeral. She was really close to me. She was near and dear to me. So I'm going to the funeral. He's like, I'm almost certain I'm going to be able to make it back to preach. I just want kind of a backup plan, just in case, but I'm not really going to need you. I just want you there just in case. So of course I said yes, because I had no intention on being up here this morning. I I feel like I was set up because it was an hour later he calls me up and says, hey, Jared, guess what? Um, I'm not going to make it back in time. Um, I could leave and drive straight through and probably make it back at 3 a.m. Sunday morning, but I don't think that would be a good idea. So you're up. Um, you're going you're gonna to teach Sunday morning. So I said, oh, all right, because I'm thinking heroes of the Bible, right? There's so many great heroes in the Bible. Who's your, who's your favorite hero? Shout it out. Abraham. That's a good one. David, awesome hero of the Bible. Moses. Yeah, these are all great heroes of the Bible. I would love to teach on any of those guys. Here's what he says next. He says, hey, Jared, you're going to be teaching on Enoch. 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 I don't know how familiar you are with Enoch, but his mention in the Old Testament goes something like this. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. That's it. Good talk. I'll see you guys next week. Seriously, though, um, Stephen was gracious enough to have some of this stuff prepared for me. And as I, as I looked through what Stephen had prepared and as I studied the, the word some more and, as, and I prayed about it, I was really encouraged by what God had to teach me through this man named Enoch. And I hope you'll be encouraged by it too. So please say a prayer for Stephen this week um, for safe travels back and that Pastor Charlie doesn't fire him when he realizes he asked me to speak today. Uh, So here's an interesting thought. Who did God choose as the first two people um, that he had to demonstrate faith um, out of Hebrews chapter 11? Who are the first two people that we've been teaching over? Last week we talked about Abel and today we're talking about Enoch. Abel and Enoch. With all due respect, these are not the men or stories that generally grab our attention from the Old Testament, right? Abel made one sacrifice and was beaten to death by his brother. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. These two men combined have fewer than 10 verses about them in the Old Testament. In comparison, here's a spoiler alert, Um, Noah, the next man mentioned in Hebrews 11, has four chapters. Abraham has 14 chapters. And Moses 
has four entire books about him. So why would God choose these two men to kick off his parade of faith? Why not just jump to these other giants and forget about these obscure footnotes in Bible history? Why would he do that? Because most of us think of ourselves as ordinary people. Nowhere near as impressive as Noah or Abraham or Moses. They were great men. They did amazing things and they changed the history of the world. I'll never be like them. As much as we desire to be the heroes of today, we are overwhelmed to compare ourselves with the heroes of the Bible. We compare by the thought of our own inadequacy. I'm going to be honest with you. I felt paralyzed this week as I was preparing for today. Charlie and Stephen, they're godly men. They have this amazing gift of un, being unable to unpack truth from Scripture, and they do such a beautiful and eloquent job of teaching on it each and every week. I can't live up to that. Luckily, as I was praying this week, God spoke to me. He said, J.B., my word speaks for itself. Just try not to get in the way. I believe God used Abel and Enoch as his first examples precisely because they were ordinary men who did not do great deeds. Instead, they were, they, what made them distinctive was that in everything they did, they focused on pleasing God. They faithfully obeyed God. You see, God isn't calling us to be heroes. God's the hero. God is simply calling us to be faithful and obedient. Let's look at some scripture and see what God has to teach us about this man named Enoch. First, we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and follow along. Otherwise, we've, we've got it on the screen here. By, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now we're going to skip to Genesis 5. We're going to turn forward to Genesis 5, verses 21 through 24. We'll put that up on the screen as well. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. So when we look at this scripture, Um, When I look at scripture, I like to kind of pull out the obvious stuff and see what we can learn from that. So what are the obvious things we can pull out of this scripture? The first one is Enoch walked with God faithfully. In Genesis 5, verse 24, it says, Enoch walked faithfully with God. So he believed in God. He trusted God and his commands. He had an intimate relationship with God and lived a life that reflected it. How many of you have had moments in your life when you're like, man, I'm walking with God? When you're just really close with God? 
I would love to be able to stand up here and say, I've had 41 years of my life that I've walked closely with God, but I'd be lying. There are times, yeah, when I'm spending time in the Word and I'm praying and I'm obeying God and I'm being faithful and it, it just shows in my life, right? But those times seem to be few and far between. But I've never turned from God because I got tired of being with God. I never turned from God because I felt like I wasn't wanted there. I've turned from God because I've been scared or I've been selfish or I've been distracted, sure. But never because I've got tired of God. My wife Devin's here today. We've been married for next month. It'll be 10 years. Um, I love my wife. She's an amazing woman. I plan on spending the rest of my life with her. I love to walk closely with my wife. But there are times when I need a little space from my wife. We've got two young boys. They're beautiful. They're so much fun. They're funny. They learn every day. I love to walk closely with my boys, to teach them, to watch them learn, to experience life with them. But I got to tell you, there are days when I'm in line to drop my kid off at kindergarten 20 minutes early because I need a little bit of time from him. But that doesn't happen with God. You see, Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Does that sound like a man that got tired of walking with God? The next obvious thing I'd like to point out is Enoch pleased God with his walk. Hebrews 11, the end of verse 5 says, For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch pleased God when he walked closely with him. Who do we know that walked closely with God before Enoch's mentioned? The first man and woman mentioned in the Bible, right? Adam and Eve. God created this world for Adam and Eve to rule over and for God to dwell in this intimate relationship with his creation, right? God spent time with Adam and Eve in the garden and it wasn't until sin entered and it drove a wall in between us and a holy God. Do you think God longed for that relationship, that intimacy again? Do you think that's why God was so pleased with his walk with Enoch? That he missed that closeness that he had with Adam and Eve. God longs to be close with us so much that he gave his one and only son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins to remove the barrier between us and God. The last obvious thing I'd like to point out is Enoch did not die. Enoch was simply taken by God at a relatively young age. All right, 365 years probably doesn't seem like a young age, but we're going to show a chart of the people that lived around that time. Look at this. In this form, it's pretty easy to notice the difference. Genesis chapter 5 is really, it's a list of people, tells who was their offspring and how long they lived and then they died. So it says, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. Canaan lived 910 years until he died. There's a big distinction between them and Enoch. It didn't say Enoch died. He was taken by God at a relatively early age. We get the impression that Enoch walked so closely with God that God wanted him home early. Could you imagine the friendship? Could you imagine the intimacy? 
Could you contemplate the ecstasy Enoch experienced when he entered heaven and there was God? He said, son, welcome home. I couldn't wait any longer. A few other things I'd like to throw out. Enoch lived pre-flood, right? Pre-flood was a pretty sinful time. I mean, so sinful that God decided, I'm going to wipe out the entire world with a flood. That's pretty sinful, right? So Enoch's walk with God was not a popularity contest. Enoch was also a prophet. They usually weren't very popular with people back then either. Jude, verses 14 and 15, mentioned that he was a prophet, and he actually prophesied against the sinfulness of the people that lived in that time. And Enoch's name, I think, is interesting. Enoch means mouth, which goes right in line with prophet, and it also means dedicated. I think he proved that he was dedicated to God when he walked faithfully with him for 300 years. All right. Those are a little, that's a little sidebar stuff that I threw out. Now let's look at faith. Faith is important to Christianity, right? It's the foundation of Christianity. If we don't have faith right, then I don't, we shouldn't be able to call ourselves a Christian, right? That's, that's, the, that's the first step is faith. We sing about it. We have refrigerator magnets about it. We talk about it. But do we fully understand what faith means? And I think some of us, make the mistake of confusing faith with belief. You see, I believe I have milk in my refrigerator. I can't see inside my refrigerator, but I believe it's there. When I left this morning, there was milk in my refrigerator, so I believe it's there. I don't have faith it's there. I wouldn't bet my life on the belief that there's milk in my refrigerator. See, faith contains two aspects. One is intellectual assent, and the other is trust. Intellectual assent is believing that something is true. Trust is actually relying on the fact that the something is true. We often use a chair illustration, right? Intellectual assent is the understanding that a chair is a chair and believing that it will support the person who tries to sit on it. Trust is actually sitting in the chair. So understanding these two aspects of faith is completely crucial. Many people believe certain facts about Jesus Christ, and many people will intellectually agree with the facts the Bible declares about Jesus, but knowing those facts to be true is not what the Bible means by faith. The biblical definition of faith requires intellectual assent to the facts and trust in the facts. Believing that Jesus is God incarnate, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and was resurrected, is not enough. Even the demons believe in God and acknowledge those facts, as stated in James 2.19. We must personally and fully rely on the death of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We must sit in the chair of the salvation that Jesus Christ has provided. This is saving faith. The faith God requires of us for salvation is belief in in what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he accomplished and fully trusting in Jesus for that salvation. We do that, boom, free ticket to heaven, right? But it doesn't end there, right? Faith goes even further. Faith isn't just a way we secure our eternal uh, destination, Faith has the power to transform our lives 
while we're living here on this world today. The biblical definition of faith does not apply only to salvation. It is equally applicable to the rest of the Christian life. We are to believe what the Bible says and we are to obey it. We are to believe the promises of God and we are to live accordingly. We are to agree with the truth of God's words and we are to allow ourselves to be transformed by it. So faith is not simply the belief in or knowledge of something. Faith is active, growing, and seated by God himself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Even our faith has been seated by God himself. We believe he exists We place our full trust in his son, Jesus, for salvation. We believe he is the guarantor of our faith and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is a type of faith which fuels and enables our walk. So how do we walk in faith? Let's apply some adjectives to faith walks and look at what they do and what they look like. The first one is going to be the most difficult one. Um, but it's, it's truth, so I think it needs to be said. Faith walks are not a walk in the park. They are often difficult, right? Look at our first example of faith. Abel made a better sacrifice than Cain because he had the right kind of faith, and he ended up being beaten to death by his brother. That's not exactly a happy ending. Faith is not a quaint prosperity gospel. Faith does not get you a full 401k. Faith does not get you the perfect body and a glorious head of hair, right? Faith is not seeing a a Facebook post and forwarding it, and in 60 seconds you'll be blessed. Faith is not a blind belief that everything happens for a reason. We live in a real world with real dangers and real consequences for real sin and real bad decisions. Everything will not be easy just because we are a people of faith. Real faith doesn't keep us out of difficult circumstances. Real faith shows up in spite of difficult circumstances. Real faith showed up at the flaming furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Real faith showed up when David stood face to face with that giant. Real faith showed up at the cross. That one's pretty heavy. Let's go on to the next one. Faith walks are pleasing to God, right? We read about how God was pleased by Enoch's walk with faith, right? This is a a Stephenism here. Faith is full of nesses. Humbleness, selflessness, steadfastness, obedience, ness. Come on. (laughs) Right? Faith walks are inherently sacrificial as when one shows a habit or a track record of self-denial in taking up his or her cross. Matthew 16, 24 says it well. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
If you plan to walk with God, you must learn to crucify your selfish tendencies. When we walk with God, not on our own, we please God. Which way would he walk in our situations? Is your marriage struggling? Which way walks with God? Quit or refuse to give up and seek to help each other, to love each other God's way? Have you lost the priority of, priority of gathering with the body of Christ and spending time each day in prayer and scripture? Which way walks with God? Sleep in or get up and show up? Have you become critical of others and bitter? Which way walks with God? Judgment and unforgiveness or gracefulness and humility? I think we know the answers to those, right? Faith walks, our trust walks. In his college days, Ken Davis, a popular youth speaker, was asked to prepare a lesson to teach his speech class. They were to be graded on their creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of his talk was The Law of the Pendulum. Basic physics, right? He spent 20 minutes explaining and teaching the principle of governs the swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum is a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it comes to rest. This moment of rest is called equilibrium. That's when all the forces acting upon it are equal. So to demonstrate this, he took a three-foot piece of string and attached a toy top to it, and he secured it to the top of a blackboard with a thumbtack. He pulled the top to one side and made a mark on the blackboard where he let it go. Each time it swung back, he made a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swinging and come to a rest. When he finished the demonstrations, the marking on the blackboard proved his thesis. He then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. Of course, all of the classmates raised their hands, including the teacher. And the teacher started to go back towards the front of the class thinking the demonstration was over. In reality, the demonstration was just beginning. For from the steel beams in the middle of the classroom, Davis had hung 250 pounds of metal weights that were attached to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. Davis invited the instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against a concrete wall. Then he brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, Davis once again explained the law of the pendulum the teacher had applauded only moments before. If the law of the pendulum is true... Then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return short of the release point, and your nose will be in no danger. After that final restatement of this law, Davis looked the teacher in his eye and asked, Sir, do you believe this law to be true? Teacher paused for a moment. Davis says he could see beads of sweat forming on his upper lip. He slowly and very quietly answered yes. So what did Davis do? He released the pendulum 
and it swooshed as it arced across the room. When it reached the other end, it paused momentarily. And as it started back, Davis said, I've never seen a man move so fast in my entire life. He literally dove from the top of that table. Stepping around the still swinging pendulum, Davis asked the class, does the teacher trust in the law of the pendulum? And the class unanimously unanimously answered, no, right? Faith is not a complicated doctrine, like the law of the pendulum. It's not a complicated doctrine. As the above illustrations point out, it's easy to understand, but sometimes it's difficult to do. Even when we know we can trust something intellectually, actually doing our faith can be scary. There's one last thing about faith walks I'd like to point out. It's not in your bulletin. Um, I added it later on this week. Um, But I think it's the most important part. Faith walks are worth it. This last July, we sent a team of 16 people to Mazatlan, Mexico on a mission trip. I spent a week there serving the orphans in three different orphanages. Um, The days were split up between having focus play with the kids and just spending time with them and loving them and then doing some real hard physical labor. It's the middle of, it's the beginning of July in Mexico. You could imagine it's hot. We worked long days out in the hot sun. I mean, we, we helped build a house. We poured concrete. We threw big cinder blocks up to the roof of a second story building. We put concrete down to reinforce a drainage ditch. We secured security spikes on the top of a fence. Some people got hurt. Some people got dehydrated. The days were long and exhausting. You know what else we did? Every morning we got up and we had focused time that we spent reading the word of God and praying. Then we broke up into small groups to go over daily devotionals. Then we had more time of prayer. We prayed throughout the day. And then after the day was done, we would come back we would have a debrief and talk about how we saw God at work in our lives and in the lives of the orphans that day. We spent more time in prayer. We spent time in worship. We were walking closely with God. Every single person that I talked to on that trip, they woke up the next morning and they were so excited to go out and labor in that sun again because it was worth it. We were walking closely with God. Every single person that I talked to that went on that trip They said, I don't want this relationship, this closeness that I have with God to end when I go back home. How do I keep this closeness with God? One of my favorite illustrations that Pastor Charlie does is a love jug, right? I don't know if you're familiar with it. It talks about Proverbs 4.23, the heart is the wellspring of life. Pastor Charlie talks about our our, our heart being a jug. It's got a capacity to be filled up. And from that capacity, we pour out to everyone in our lives, to our wives, to our husbands, to our children, to our coworkers, comes out of that. And we get drained throughout the day. Well, who fills up our love jug? God does. So when we walk closely with God, he is the source of life for us. Walking faithfully with God is worth it. Um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to do a take two um, where we can spend some time um, just in prayer and meditation. 
and see where God is calling you to walk faithfully with him. Will you obediently walk with him or will you go your own way? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the heroes of faith that you give us as examples. There are heroes that have done great things and there are heroes that do seemingly small things, but God, first and foremost, you are the hero. You're the hero in their lives. You're the hero in our lives today, God. We thank you that you long to be in a relationship with us. And God, we pray that this week you will help us to walk closely with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.